Kia ora, my name is Joelle, and um, we're reading from Romans 4, verses 1 to 15, which is on page 968 of the Church Bibles. Let's pray together before we um, hear from God's word. (coughs) Heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means, and the will to put it into practice, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Thanks, Joel. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Andy. If I haven't met you before, I would love to meet you afterwards. I've got a little frog in my throat, so hopefully you can hold up. Um, It'll be really helpful to have Romans 4 in front of you, um, and particularly a paper Bible, because it'll be jumping around a little bit. Um, But as we come to God's Word, how about I pray? Um, Father God, we thank you for your Word, and we thank you for your Spirit, who is at work through your Word, who authored these words, and who brings these words to life in our hearts and minds. And we ask that your spirit would be at work as your word is open this morning. We ask that you would change us to the conformity of your will, so that we might even step from death to life by faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, faith, what, what is that word? It comes up a lot in this passage, um, and it's bandied around a lot by people, especially people of faith. Um, but what does it actually mean to have faith? Uh, is it to believe something despite the evidence? Is that what faith is? Uh, sometimes I get this backhanded compliment from people who don't have faith. They say, oh, I wish I had your faith. When actually what they mean is, oh, I wish I could switch my brain off and stop being rational and, and forget about science and just have faith. Is that it? Is it to believe despite the evidence? Or is it to be so sure that God is going to give you something because you have this faith, this feeling that God is going to give you this thing, that I'll get this job or that God will really heal this person? Is that what faith is? Well, actually, there's nothing particularly religious about the word faith. Um, the, the word translated faith here in our Bible, it's the same word that's also translated believe, uh, and the same word also translated trust. So faith is just believing something, trusting something. So every one of us has walked into this room because we have faith. We have faith in the building that the roof isn't going to collapse, Right? You might not have thought about this. In fact, you probably haven't. But by being in this room, you're trusting in the building standards and the engineers and the builders and the people who maintain this building that it's not going to collapse. And in fact, your faith is so sure that you, have, you haven't even thought about it as you've come in. But if bits of the building started falling down over here, perhaps, maybe your faith might start to be a bit shaky, Right? Faith is just trusting in someone or something. But it seems as soon as we start talking about religion, faith becomes different somehow. I was talking to three guys the other week um, who all believed in Jesus, but who all believed very different things. Uh, in fact, uh, it, it sounds a bit like a joke. There was a Catholic, a charismatic, and a universalist, if you know what those words mean. But at the end of the conversation, one of them said... Well, what really matters is that we're all believers, right? We all have faith. That's what really counts. Was he right? Should Christians stop fighting over doctrinal differences and just be united around faith? Even united around faith in Jesus. Should we stop being so particular about doctrine? about what we believe, and just embrace the fact that we share faith. Well, it depends, doesn't it? It depends what you mean by faith, and it depends what you mean by faith in Jesus. What Jesus are you having faith in? And what are you thinking or believing Jesus will do for you? Because people vary very widely on that question. And so when it comes to faith in Jesus, it's not just a matter for us to share our opinion. You have your opinion and I have my opinion and that's all good. No, actually, this is not something you want to get wrong. Because as it turns out, faith in Jesus is the deciding factor for your eternal destiny. And that's what we've been seeing in Romans so far. 
That's where we've got to in Paul's explanation of the gospel. Uh, He's just introduced last week in the second half of chapter 3, just introduced this radical idea that we are justified by faith in Jesus. We're justified before God by faith. After two and a half chapters of the bad news of Paul showing us how every single one of us is a sinner facing the judgment of God. He's closed every loophole. He's left no exception. We're all guilty before God. Finally, Paul delivers the good news with those marvelous two simple words in verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21. But now. We're all sinners under God's judgment. We all fall short of God's glory. But now. Have a look, if you've got it open in front of you, have a look with me, Romans 3, 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This is the good news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus because of Jesus' death on the cross, if we trust him, if we trust in his death on our behalf, we can be forgiven, made clean, given righteousness before God. Do you see how important faith in Jesus is? There are only two types of people on this planet. There are only two possibilities for sinners facing judgment, and we're all sinners facing judgment. It's forgiveness or condemnation. That's the only two options. Either you have faith in Jesus and you're justified, you're declared righteous before God, forgiven at the last judgment, or you don't have faith and so you face God's judgment alone. Do you see how high the stakes are with this question? What is faith? You get faith wrong and you spend eternity under God's judgment. Is there anything more important than working this out? So how can we know? How can we know who's right when it comes to faith? Well, fortunately, God hasn't left us in the dark. He spoke through prophets and ultimately through his son, the incarnate son of God, And the Son, Jesus, appointed apostles, commissioned humans to preach the gospel. And those words of the apostles have been preserved for us in this book. They've been meticulously copied through the centuries. And now panels of experts study the thousands and thousands of manuscripts. They translate it into a language that we can understand. And that's what God has given us so that we can test what is true faith. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? And when you read this book and you ask the question, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Well, it's actually very clear what kind of faith saves us. And that's what Paul is at pains to teach the Romans and through Romans teaching us that we're saved by faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone. Now, this was a radical mindset for Paul's audience. Uh, See, the Jews, they believed to be saved on judgment day. Well, you have to follow God's law. 
But now Paul is saying, sorry guys, no one is going to be declared righteous before by observing the law. He spells it out in his conclusions in Romans 3.20. He says, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. And then there's the but now. Apart from the law, a righteousness has been known, a righteousness by faith. Now, at this point, you can imagine a devout Jew, maybe one of Paul's Pharisee friends from way back. Hang on, Paul. You can't just throw out the whole Old Testament law-based righteousness with some new righteousness by faith just because some guy Jesus told you. What's going on? And so having introduced this idea of righteousness by faith at the end of Romans 3, now in Romans 4, Paul is going to show us that this righteousness by faith idea, it's not a new idea. Sure, it's been made known through Jesus, it's been fulfilled through Jesus, but it's nothing new. It's always been this way. If you're following along in your outlines, uh, it's always been this way. That's where we're up to. This is the way that God has justified his people throughout history. There's no inconsistency with the Old Testament here. See, it's tricky sometimes, isn't it, to to see how the Bible is consistent from cover to cover. It can seem like we're dealing with two different gods, right? Have you ever noticed this? Uh, Maybe you've had objections from atheist friends or even your own thoughts. Like, isn't the God of the Old Testament the angry God and then the New Testament God is much more loving and merciful? It can be hard to see its consistency. But if you slow down and dig a little deeper... And look at things like what Paul's showing us here. You can see that the Bible is actually a consistent story from beginning beginning to end. The whole thing fits together as this amazing narrative of God saving the world through Jesus. And considering it's a compilation of multiple genres over many centuries with dozens of different authors, the fact that it's as consistent as it is, is remarkable. In fact, it points to its divine authorship. It gives us confidence that this was not made up by humans. This is the word of God. And so to show his Jewish buddies and us that it's not inconsistent for Paul to bring up this faith-based righteousness, he goes right back to the beginning of faith, to the father of faith, Father Abraham. And also to the faithful King David, these great pillars of Israel's history. And Paul's making the case that righteousness for God's people, it's always been righteousness by faith, not by works. It was there at the beginning with Abraham, and it's there at its peak with King David. And so as we look at Abraham and David, we can have confidence that it's always been God saving people through faith. And as we look at what Paul says here about faith, about saving faith, we'll see firstly, saving faith is the opposite of works. Secondly, saving faith is trusting God at his word. And thirdly, saving faith is trusting God for forgiveness. So let's look at the first one. Saving faith is the opposite of works. Uh, Because as Paul points out, Abraham's righteousness is credited not as uh, an obligation. It's, it's not earned as an obligation, but it's credited as a gift. Um, have a read with me. We're, we're finally in chapter 4, 
Uh, Thanks for bearing with me. It's really important context. Chapter 4, Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, do you see how Abraham is declared righteous in God's sight? Abraham believed God, and it was credited, it being his belief, his faith, it was credited to him as righteousness. See, Paul's drawing a contrast here between a gift and wages. Now, you don't say to your employer, um, thank you so much for crediting my account with this gift of my wages. No, you check your paycheck and ensure that you were paid correctly. And if you weren't, well, your employer is obligated to pay you for the work you've done. But that's not how it works with Abraham's righteousness. He didn't do anything to earn his righteousness. He didn't obey any laws. He didn't offer any sacrifices. He didn't do any rituals. It wasn't righteousness on the basis of wages, of doing things. He simply believed God. And God credited his belief as righteousness, as a gift, not an obligation. Now, timing is critical here. See, Paul is at pains to show us that all this happened before Abraham was circumcised. Now, why is that important? Uh, well, that's what Paul's talking about at the end of the passage from verse 9. He's, he's trying to make it very clear that this happened before Abraham was circumcised. He was declared righteous before. Why is it a big deal? Well, it means that righteousness is not something just for the Jewish people. Circumcision was the sign that set the Jewish people apart from all the world as God's chosen people. But God doesn't credit people righteousness on the basis of affiliation with the Jewish community. And he doesn't credit people with righteousness based on a ritual. Those things are external. In fact, the entire law, verse 13... The entire law came after the righteousness that was given to Abraham. Verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, righteousness is something that we don't earn. It's something we're given. Now, this isn't just hard for the first century Jew to hear and understand. It's hard to get our heads around it, isn't it? I mean, think about the word righteous for a sec. How is someone a righteous person? What would someone look like if they were a righteous person? Surely they would do the right things, right? If a house is spacious, it's because it has a lot of space. If someone is tenacious, it's because they have tenacity, right? And so if someone is righteous, well, surely it's because they do right, 
And it's not just the word that's confusing, it's, it's a psychological barrier as well. We don't like the idea of being given something we didn't earn. We, don't, we like the idea of earning a reward after hard work. We don't want to be a charity case. And so when you think about it, pretty much every religion on the planet, including a bunch of churches who say they believe in Jesus, it's about what you do to get to heaven. To achieve enlightenment, perhaps. To be welcomed into paradise or Valhalla or Nirvana or to be reincarnated as a prince rather than a rat or to shorten your time in purgatory or whatever heavenly future is out there. The way to get there, you've got to be a good person, right? But I've got news for you. Good people don't go to heaven. Only bad people do. Have you heard that before? Only people who are willing to see that they can't make it on their own. Do you remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? You may not be familiar with this story, but the Pharisee said, Thank you, God, I'm not like this tax collector, this evil person. I fast, I give generously to the poor, I'm a good person. But the problem is, even the most committed Catholic the most devout Muslim, the most enlightened Buddhist, the most godly Christian, we all fall well short of God's perfect standard. If you haven't got that by now, listen back to the six or so talks that we've had in Romans so far. It's undeniable. We all fall short of the glory of God. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Our only hope is if God credits us a righteousness we don't deserve, that we can't earn, that we can only depend on him for, trust him for. It's not about what you do. It's about who we trust. So that's the first thing that Abraham shows us. God declares people righteous from the very beginning, not by what they do, but in what they believe. But if the way we receive this gift is by believing, what does it actually mean to believe God? What's actually going on in Abraham's heart here that he gets credited with righteousness? Well, the second, that brings us to our second point. Saving faith is taking God at his word. See, notice that it doesn't say Abraham believed in God and it was credited as righteousness. It's not that all Abraham had to do was believe God existed. No, what this is saying, it's saying that when Abraham believed God, it's saying God had promised Abraham something, and God believed that. He took God at his word. Uh, To show you this a bit more clearly, let's look at this text in its original context. uh, Back in Genesis 15, so you might want to keep a finger in Romans 4. Flick back to Genesis 15, right at the start of the Bible. Um, Page 11, if you've got one of these black ones. I'll read from verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Now, Abram was Abraham's name before God changed it. So this is the same guy. 
Um, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. heir." Um, Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the stars, at, at, at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here's our quote. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So what's going on here? Well, God is speaking to Abram, this, this random guy in the Middle East in a vision. And God says, Abram, I'm with you. I'm for you. You're all good. And Abram says, well, whatever it is you're going to give me, I'm about to die soon. And there's not much point because I don't have anyone to pass it on to. But God says, no, I'm going to give you a son in your old age, a son of your own flesh and blood. And then he takes him outside and shows him the night sky. And he says, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. Do you see the kind of belief Abram has? It's not, a, it's not that he believes in God, like he believes that this voice in his head is actually God. No, he believes in the word of God, the promise of God. He takes God at his word. God gives him a very specific promise, an amazing promise. I'm going to give you a son, and through him, I'm going to make a great nation, and all the nations on the earth will be blessed through him. And Abram believes God. He takes him at his word. He looks up up at those stars more than he could possibly count. How humbling is it to look up at the night sky, especially if you can get out of the city on a clear night? I, I reckon Abraham was thinking, well, God, I don't know how this is possible, but you made all those stars. So perhaps it's not that far fetched that you could give me a son in my old age. And I guess you're talking to me in particular for some reason, so it's not that far-fetched to imagine that you're going to make a great nation out of my son and his descendants. He considers the promise, and he believes it. He takes God at his word. He believes that God will do what he promised. And it's the same for us. Faith that saves, it's not just a belief that God or Jesus exists. Saving faith is trusting that Jesus will do what he promised. It's taking God at his word. Which, as an aside, it means we need to be really careful about believing God will do stuff that he hasn't promised. See, God can heal your loved one of cancer. He can do it, but he doesn't promise that he will, this side of heaven. He can give you a sign to show you who you should marry or what job you should do or where you should live, but he doesn't promise to do that either. God can make you wealthy and successful. He can do that, and if you are wealthy and successful, thank God you haven't done that on your own. 
But he doesn't promise that if you believe in him, you will somehow be wealthy and successful. He doesn't promise that. There are plenty of poor Christians out there who believe sincerely and trust sincerely in God. It's a dangerous and it's a false understanding of faith. Because faith is believing God's word. It's believing the promises he's given us. Make sure you're not expecting something of God that he hasn't promised he will do because you will be disappointed. Make sure you're not led astray by false teachers who put words in God's mouth to feed you what your itching ears want to hear. Appealing to our longings and desires. God can do that for you. He can do it for you, but he hasn't promised that he will. Maybe he wants to teach you to trust him more before he gives you that good thing. You might just find yourself believing in a God of your own imagination, not the God of reality, not the God of Abraham, not the God of the Bible. So what do we believe in? How do we have saving faith? Well, that brings us to our next point and to King David. Come back to me. Uh, come back to me. Come back to Romans 4. If, you've, if you're not with me, come back to me. Um, but Romans 4, I didn't put my finger in it like I said I should. Page 968. <clears throat> Romans 4 from verse 6 as we move to David. And, and what we learn from David is that saving faith is trusting God for forgiveness. That's the promise that we're trusting. Romans 4 verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Now, uh, Paul's quoting here from David in Psalm 32. And notice it doesn't say anything about righteousness or faith or works. So what, what's Paul getting at here? He says David says the same thing, but he's not saying the same thing. Well, the same thing is what? Look at the verse before, verse 5. Verse 5, Romans 4, verse 5. To the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So whose faith is credited as righteousness? Well, it's the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly. And that's exactly what David's talking about, isn't it? He's saying the same thing, that God will justify the ungodly. See, who are the blessed in the psalm? Well, they're not those who are working hard to save themselves. What works do they contribute in these verses? Well, transgressions, sins. That's all they have to contribute to their salvation. David says, blessed are the ones who are un ungodly, but who God has covered their sins. Blessed are the ones he will never count their sin against them. See, he justifies the ungodly. He counts them as righteousness, as righteous. 
So do you see how we can obtain the righteousness of God? It's only by the forgiveness of God, the promise of forgiveness for those who trust him for forgiveness. So putting it together, saving faith, it's not trusting in our works, but in the promises of God. And what promises of God can we trust for our forgiveness? Well, hopefully if you've been at this church for any length of time, you've heard an abundance of these promises. The promises of the gospel, the promise of forgiveness found in Jesus, to which the law and the prophets testify that we are all like sheep, gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That by his wounds we are healed. That he came and gave his life as a ransom for many. That whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. That this body and this blood was broken and poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Romans 3.25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. By taking God at his word and trusting the promise of forgiven, forgiveness found only in Jesus. So that you might be truly blessed, declared righteous, justified, redeemed, forgiven. See, all those stars that Abraham looked up at, that prompted him to believe the word of God all those millennia ago. When God made that promise to that man and that old man believed him. If you follow in the footsteps of your father Abraham and believe the promises of God that he's made to you, promises of forgiveness found in Jesus, well, then you're one of those stars fulfilling the promise to Abraham all those years ago that from you I will make a great nation and all the nations will be blessed. You're living proof that God has kept his word through the centuries, that he's trustworthy. Which means saving faith isn't just believing that Jesus or God exists. It's not just a matter of closing our, our minds and just believing whatever we feel in our hearts. And it means that it's absolutely essential if we want a hope of getting through judgment unscathed. Saving faith, it's trusting in the promises of God to forgive us in Jesus. Do you have saving faith? Well, let me close with four very quick implications from this idea of justification by faith and not works. Three things it means, one thing it doesn't mean. Firstly, it means we can let go of trying to be good enough for God. You're not going to make it. You won't do it. I'm sorry. No one will be declared righteous by following the works of the law. It's like trying to swim to Australia. Sure, you can go ahead, train as much as you like, give it your best shot. The world record for unassisted swimming 82 kilometers. Martin Strell swam across Lake Malawi in 27 hours. Valiant effort, Martin. Only 2,136 kilometers to go. You're not going to make it. We don't get to heaven by doing good works. 
The only way is through the cross of Christ. Secondly, second implication, it means we need humility. What's the greatest thing that inhibits our faith? The thing that stops people believing? The things that stops Christians living wholeheartedly for God? It's our pride. We don't want to be dependent on someone else. We don't want to be a charity case. If you're here today and you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, if you haven't yet trusted in him, or you're struggling in your faith, you're feeling like God is distant, ask yourself, is my pride getting in the way here? Don't let your pride stop you reaching eternal life. Come to God with a contrite heart. He won't turn you away. So secondly, we need not pride, humility. Thirdly, it means we can let go of guilt. If you trust in Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. Do you know this? Even the worst things you've ever done, even those habits that you just can't stop, forgiven. Past, present, future. You're washed clean. So stop beating yourself up. Jesus went to the cross for that. You're no longer guilty. Now, keep fighting it. Yes, keep repenting. Get help if you've got habitual sin. But don't hold on to the guilt. Let the guilt drive you to the cross of Christ where your guilt was dealt with once and for all. That's three things it means. But finally, one thing it doesn't mean. Salvation by faith Righteousness by faith, it doesn't mean we have a license to sin. See, the beautiful thing about the children of Abraham is that even though we don't need to earn our way to heaven, if you trust in Jesus, he doesn't just forgive your sin. He transforms your heart so you no longer want to. Sin is no longer your master. And for more on that, you'll have to keep coming back and hearing the rest of Romans because that's why he spends the next 12 chapters explaining. Shall we sin so that grace may increase? By no means. You died to sin. How can you live it any longer? In view of God's mercy, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Brothers and sisters, we're not saved by what we do. But in God's grace, we're saved by Jesus to do good works for his glory. How about we pray to that end? Father God, we come before you with humility, recognizing that we have nothing to offer to earn righteousness in your sight. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the promise of forgiveness found in him and in him alone. We pray that you would reveal to us what it means to believe in Jesus and not to rely on our own works. And we pray that you would wash us clean. We pray that even this morning that you would be at work by your spirit humbling those who have been too prideful 
to accept the charity of Jesus' death for us. Lord, would you save people this morning? Would you give them living faith that they might put their trust in the promises of God to us in Jesus? And for those of us who do believe, Lord, please help us to be humble. Help us to let go of the guilt that can so weigh us down. Help us to stop trying to make it on our own, but to walk with you by faith, trusting in you, but seeking to live lives that honor you all the same. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to invite the musicians up um, to sing a wonderful song, In Christ Alone. Uh, There's a line in the song, uh, on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because of that line, this song was removed from the um, American Presbyterian hymnal because it was too controversial to talk about the wrath of God. But that's faith. In order to trust that Jesus died for your sins, you need to understand that you need forgiveness. The wrath of God is coming. So let's celebrate the victory that Jesus has won for us so that we can be right with God. Let's sing together.